Uh, will you guys open with me to Acts 1? We're going to read from God's Word. So we'll read Acts. Our, uh, we're looking at what does it look like to be disciples, our identity as disciples, and we're going to look at that through Acts 1, 1 through 11. So if you read along with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during a 40-day period and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men standing by them in white robes said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you, into, from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Hello, Father. <laughs> Thank you that you have brought us together this morning to study your word and to hear how you have defined us as your disciples. More than that, even to hear your call upon our lives to become disciples. And I pray that you would reveal your word, not through my wisdom or through my strength or through anything that I studied this week or thought or read, but by your spirit through the hearts of everyone in this room, including this person standing up here. Help us to learn better what it is that you want us to do how you want us to live, and who you want us to be in light of all that you've done. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So I'm a vaguely musical person, and uh, something that I've always like really wanted to do is be able to play the guitar. I've always really wanted to play the guitar. In fact, I think I got a guitar. Was this in high school, I think? My parents bought me a guitar for Christmas one year in high school. And my friends recently were asking about it, like, is that new? Like, are you going to, like, pick up the guitar? And it's like, no, well, that's been there since high school when I thought that I was going to pick up the guitar. The reason that that is the case is because uh, I would really love to be able to, like, gather around the people. Like, Melanie and Cody are so, like, skilled, and they're able to play, and, like, sometimes we'll get together and just have fun, sing different songs, and enjoy just being together and creating music. That's a beautiful thing, right? I would love to be able to do that. I would love to just be able to, like, in the Sonic parking lot, just 
tear it up with my friends. But um, I, want, I want that. I really like genuinely do desire that benefit and that good thing. But I do not in any way want to spend all the hours that it's going to take to learn to actually do that. Like I don't want to go into the process of learning. I don't want to sit alone for hours. I don't want to build new calluses on my hands. I don't want to just like practice something over and over and l until I finally get the riff. I don't. I just, I refuse to do that. And it's part of it, I think, is because I won't make the time for it. But there's another part of it, too, where it's like, I really just don't want to sit down and be bad at something for six months, two years, four years, six years, however long it is. Because there's so many people that are really good at it, and I would be comparing myself to them the whole time. So there's that. There's that. That's like my weirdness for the morning. But I think that that strange thing, that lack of discipline and like shame that I heap upon myself because I'm not John Mayer every time I pick up the guitar for the first time is, Cody loves John Mayer, by the way, uh, is I think that that displays something that uh, is kind of in our lives when we approach discipleship. And that is we want all the benefits of being disciples. We want the kingdom. We want the righteousness of God. We want to be changed and transformed into new creations. We want these good things about the kingdom. We want to be disciples. We don't necessarily want the process of discipleship. We don't want all the pain that it's going to take to be transformed and changed in the everyday. And so while that is the case, we, we kind of want to that, we want the benefits, the payoff of discipleship without the process of discipleship. But I think the gospel of Acts 1, 1 through 11 today is that we can't experience the payoff of discipleship without the process. Um, and so how do, we, how do we lean into the process? How do we lean into discipleship as it really is? I think that there are three ways. The first one is by revealing our reactions. So uh, the second way is by relying on the Spirit. And the third is by remembering the resurrection. So the first one, revealing our reactions. Um, first off, I think we need to kind of define discipleship. And so I'm not going to just nail it with one definition, but throw out a few definitions. So there's one definition is increasingly submitting all of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a definition. Jesus came as Lord, and we should submit our lives to him as he is the king of the universe. Jesus himself gave a definition of discipleship, which was from Matthew 10:39, and it's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. And then there's, there's a more like apprenticeship definition of discipleship that kind of comes to us from the New Testament. And that, that kind of looks like the people who would have followed Jesus around. So like the disciples were these people. They followed Jesus, who was a rabbi, and they just lived with him and walked around with him and devoted their lives to being with him and seeing how he did things, seeing how he handled different situations and hearing his teaching and receiving that from him so that they could become more like him. So another definition is being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. So there's that, there's that transformation of person, and then there's also that transformation of function and of doing. 
And then one last definition is maybe discipleship could also be defined as worshiping Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and helping others do the same. So in the Greek gloss, the word mathetes, the word disciple, is actually not in this passage. So you may ask, well, why are you preaching on discipleship from a passage that doesn't have the word disciple in it? That's a good question. But uh, the disciples, while the word actually isn't there, the disciples are there. So I think we can learn something about discipleship that's really important from this. Um, yeah. So if you look back at your text, uh, the disciples are defined by Jesus. They're present with him, the people who have followed along with Jesus this whole time. But then they're also defined by Jesus in this text as verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that definition of discipleship is they're going to be empowered witnesses. They're going to be people who go and tell, kind of like the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell them about the kingdom that's come to you, but also like teach them to do the things that I taught you to do. So the kind of discipleship that Jesus is inviting us to in Acts 1, 1 through 11 looks kind of like being empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Um, and then, oh, yeah. And then they would also kind of do the things that Jesus did, which is show that the kingdom had come. So they're like healing people, speaking in tongues, doing all these things, but it's to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus is among you. Um, and so then there's one last implication, I think, from the text, too, as well, that we can find about what is a disciple, and it's the actual word itself of witness, the martyros of Jesus Christ, the witnesses, being his witnesses to the whole world. Um, the word probably sounds familiar, and that's because the word comes, we get our word martyr from the word witness in Greek. And that's because eventually, after enough bloodshed, the disciples and the disciples of Jesus and people in the world around them probably linked this word with just people who are going to die, people who are going to witness to Jesus Christ, tell of the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come, and Rome is going to try and quash that and destroy that kingdom that's coming against theirs. Okay, so why might we not want to be disciples? Well, a reaction that we might have, I think, and there's a lot of reactions in the text, is maybe to escape discipleship. First off, it's because I think the disciples, when Jesus shows up, say, hey, are you going to come establish the kingdom? Are you going to make everything right? Like, are you going to go overthrow Rome and put a king on the seat of the throne of Israel like you said you were going to do this whole time, like we thought that you were going to do? And Jesus pivots them and he says, that's not... That's going to happen, but it's not going to happen right now. That's, that's fixed for another date. And so, first off, I think one of the reasons that we can try to escape discipleship is Jesus didn't bring the kingdom as we expected. And he didn't bring the kingdom immediately and establish all righteousness, all rightness, all goodness immediately. Um, but then there's another, there's another reason that we might not want to step into discipleship and embrace it. And I think that that's because Jesus didn't, the call of in and of itself is also hard. Like the call to deny yourself, take up your cross every single day and follow after him is a difficult call. 
so there's there's different kinds of escapism maybe in the text, and I may be pushing this on this a little bit. If if so, throw it out. But here's a few that I see. Uh, verse 11, uh, the, the angels said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus whom you saw who was taken up to you, he's going to come back. The angels, for some reason, I mean, it kind of makes sense that you would stare into heaven after Jesus, after he's just levitated into heaven. But the angels, for some reason, think that this is an improper response. And I'm going I'm to say, I think that's because there's a certain kind of gazing after Jesus that can be wrong. So it's not wrong to gaze after Jesus in awe and, and beauty and worship. That's what we did this morning, right? Like we gathered around and we sang songs and we looked into heaven and said, yeah, our king is on the throne and we're going to come and, and gather and worship him today. But then there's like maybe another kind of gazing into heaven that can be kind of escapist. And so I'll there's like maybe an eschatological escapism and maybe a worshipful escapism. Uh, eschatological escapism, I think, in Christianity today can look like maybe a lot of Jesus is going to come back and make everything right and one day I will see him in glory and the streets will be paved with gold and this kind of traditional like escapist philosophy on what it is to be a Christian, where it's like Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. And so this world's going to hell, and, you know, except for the 4th of July, then we romanticize America. But like this world's just, it's going to hell in a handbasket, and Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. But that's not necessarily like the view that Jesus called us to have as disciples of Jesus Christ. He didn't call us to romanticize the world, and he didn't also call us to, like, just be like, ah, oh, man, I can't wait until I get to heaven one day. Um, he called us to be witnesses. That's who he's saying for us to be. He's saying for us to be witnesses to the world and be present is, I think, what that requires. So not, someday, come on, Jesus, come back. And then there's also maybe a worshipful escapism, and that is, like, in Christian culture today, people who want to gather together and just think that worship is, I mean, Rusty kind of said, worship doesn't, and Cassie did too this morning, actually, Worship doesn't end when we stop the music. Worship is actually something that from the beginning in the garden, we did all the time. That was what we were created for in the first place, was to be the image of God and populate the world and bring glory to him in everything that we do. And so maybe there can be this kind of worshipful escapism that looks like an us for no more club where we kind of gather together for a bunch of songs and we kind of hide out from, from the world and don't go and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is a hand in the world like we're called to. Um, yeah, I'm already behind. There's lots of other ones. There's, I'll just run through those real quick. There's kind of blatant escapism, which is Jesus says, hey, don't run away from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of God. And then there's uh, maybe an imperialistic escapism. So they want him to bring the kingdom as they thought he was going to bring the kingdom. And that looks like taking Caesar out and like kicking in the doors of the palace, right? Um, and making everything right in the world. And then there may be like some sort of Gnostic escapism, which is like, that's in verse seven. Jesus says, you're not gonna know everything that's gonna happen. Uh, you're not gonna know the times and the seasons of me coming. I'm gonna come like a thief in the night. Things aren't gonna be completely clear and clean cut. You don't have to know when Jesus is gonna come. And there's this kind of escapism that can happen to us by us knowing everything. And so Jesus doesn't give us all the answers. And that's another good thing. 
Anyway, there's a lot of different kinds of ways that we can react and avoid discipleship, avoid the reality of discipleship. But, but the truth is, in verse 1, after Luke, Luke is narrated in the third person, the gospel according to Luke. And starting in verse 1 of Acts, there's a first-person narrator. And this is Luke's kind of way of inviting us into the story, inviting us to be a part of it. You're kind of invited as the reader, not just to sit in the third person and watch all the things that Jesus did of something that happened a long time ago, but we're invited out of the armchair into a life of being witnesses. And so all of these kind of escapist tactics, they're just desires and endeavors to establish another set of circumstances that aren't the ones that we've been called to. And so those are, that's kind of sneaky. We can kind of try to avoid the thing that Jesus has really called us to, which is to be disciples to be witnesses to the world around us, but that's just not doing what he said to do. I think that escapist tendencies can be very also real and evident in the American church, and I think that this is the case because when we think of discipleship in the American church broadly, we kind of think of a different category other than Christians. Like we don't immediately think tie Christian and disciple together, right? Like, disciples of Jesus Christ, at least, like, just growing up in the church, disciples was not necessarily a word that was used as much as Christian. And so there's kind of this secondary category that can be created of, oh, yeah, well, these people are Christians, but these people are, like, disciples. They're like the Green Beret Christians. They're like the CrossFitters of Christendom kind of thing. And that was never like, that was never a category that was created in the early church. It was just, you're a disciple and a follower of Jesus, and you've completely radically reoriented your life and changed it to follow him and deny yourself, or you haven't. You're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard comments on this a little bit, um, on this phenomenon, and he says, non-discipleship, he's talking about the elephant in the room at the church, He says, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the many moral failures, the financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. He says, the fundamental negative reality among Christian believers today is the failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. I'll say that again. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers today is the failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. And it is an accepted reality. The divisions of professing Christians and those to whom uh, are, oh, to those that it matters, that it is a matter of whole life devotion and those who maintain this kind of consumer-client relationship to the church has now been an accepted reality for the past 1,500 years. So he's saying, we've created this division. It's not biblical, uh, and it actually is the reason that we're having all the problems and the similarities within the church to the world as we see in the church today. So Jesus didn't bring his kingdom as planned. Uh, And he didn't bring it maybe in the way that we would like. He didn't establish the righteousness of the kingdom and create, like, make the crooked straight and create everything, recreate everything the way that it was supposed to be immediately. Um, 
And that may be a reason to avoid discipleship. Like, we may not like the set of circumstances that we've been given, but there's also another reason that we might avoid discipleship, and that is that we haven't been made right. Like, we ourselves haven't been morally cleansed and sterilized, and therefore we can feel inadequate to carry on, to carry out the witnessing that Jesus has called us to do. And so I think maybe this is evident in also, like, y'all know Martin Luther, right? The reformed guy. So he's, he's the guy who in the hagiographical account like nailed the 95 theses to the front door of the church, right? But before he was this inflammatory re- reformation figure, he was a monk and he was a part of the Augustinian order and he would, had devoted his life to following God and seeking God. The monastic movement was this idea that if you got away from the corruptness of the world, you could get closer to God by being alone and being in this monastery. Well, that was not the case for Martin Luther, at least not in his experience. So he was this Augustinian monk of strict observance, like this very strict order of, of monastics. And yet he felt horribly alone and like just not right. He, was, he writes in like different writings of his just about being tortured by the righteousness of God. Like he couldn't understand how if God was righteous and he was not, how he could ever be made righteous or make himself righteous to, to be close to God. And it was something that haunted him every single day of his life. Like he, there are stories, and I don't know whether they're true or not, but there are stories, stories of him like just beating himself unconscious with a whip to try and atone for his sins. Stories of him like throwing himself, like opening the doors of the monastery and throwing himself into the snow to basically just try and make himself right with God or punish himself for the things that he had done. And he was tortured by even just like small little things. Like he would go to his confessor just so many times every single day and wear him out and just tell him about like passing gas while he was praying. Like even just minute things, I'm serious. And so there was this kind of mental torture and there's those weird stories, but it's like, if I pause for a minute and think about it, like, I wonder how just alone and afraid he felt and ashamed. Like, how much shame do you have to carry in your body to do that kind of stuff and to want to be right with God so badly but just feel this this special kind of brokenness that, like, no matter what I do, no matter what I say or what, how much I pray, I can't be made correct. There's another, uh, another author that kind of hits on some of this internal reality experience of following Jesus. And he talks about, he, makes, he writes this book called The Imperfect Disciple. And he writes it for, he calls it, people who don't feel saved before they've had their second cup of coffee. And that's kind of a, like, that feels kind of blasphemous. It's like, oh, but he's being genuine. He's talking about genuine people's experience, like people who wake up in the morning and they don't feel saved in the morning. They feel like God is angry at them. They feel the shame of and the weight of God upon their lives. Um, yeah, and he talks about, like, feeling himself, feeling, like, just this special kind of, 
neurotic brokenness and shame in his life that kept him from feeling like he could, uh, he could really carry out what God had called him to do, which is be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so those points said, I think there's this kind of discipleship that, you know, okay, the call in and of itself, the circumstances aren't correct. Jesus hasn't made the circumstances as we want them to be. And then there's the call itself is really hard. And then there's also just me and myself trying to be a follower of Jesus and feeling really broken and inadequate and not ready for the call. And I think those, those three reasons are reasons that we should and do want to escape the actual process of everyday discipleship. If I'm not even made right myself, like how am I going to be a witness to the ends of the earth? Um, so maybe we, maybe we feel unworthy to be witnessing to God's goodness uh, because of something that we did in the past that disqualifies us. Maybe we feel scared to death to really open our hearts because of all that's inside of them, open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and see what he's going to do and bring into our lives. Maybe there's a physical ailment in your life that makes you feel limited and not able to carry out his call to be witnesses to the ends of the earth and the world around you. Maybe there's some mental instability that you have that causes you to feel doubts or fears that you feel like you need to take care of before you go out and witness and tell people about the goodness of God. Or maybe this is maybe you feel like you just don't have enough time. Maybe you feel like you're too busy to be a disciple and a witness because you're just trying to survive with kids and family and all the things that you have to do. Or maybe, this is one for me, maybe you don't feel like you know enough to go out and tell people about Jesus. Maybe you feel like you haven't had enough theology classes and so you, you just doubt yourself and you don't want to be placed in a scenario where you might not know an answer. These are uh, real things that we could do to kind of avoid being disciples. And there maybe some more concrete examples are like we could react to those doubts and fears and ailments and things within ourselves and the circumstances that we have by doing different things. Maybe we just, here's a scenario. Maybe we, I'm running short on time, sorry. That's in my head right now. Uh, maybe we start an MFT degree because we can learn about all the things that we need and avoid the process of healing. Maybe we like learn a lot about theology because uh, knowing a lot about theology gives us a degree of control over all the things that we feel like we don't know. Maybe we stay busy so we don't have to go home and like be with ourselves. Maybe we don't engage in relationships that we should be engaging in um, to be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Maybe it looks like an intense pursuit of the spiritual disciplines that actually like kind of pigeonholes you and doesn't allow you to spend time with other people um, and do what Jesus called you to do, which is live in the world and tell people. Uh, or maybe here's for Matthew's table, us who are like trying to be disciples. Maybe you're like trying to hide in plain sight. Maybe you are a part of a church that has a really good discipleship theology and so you think that by being a part of this church, it'll be less hard to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or you'll know all the things and you can actually avoid the process. That's kind of messed up, but we could do that too. Okay, so next point. Uh, 
So we got to know, we got to know our possible reactions. We kind of want to escape the process of discipleship because it's uncomfy, because we ourselves feel brokenness in our, in our bodies, in our lives. We feel inadequate to approach this process of discipleship, to go and proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come among us. Um, and also like the circumstances around all of this just aren't correct. And so I, what I think we need to look like, look at is the early disciples. What, what in this text is going to help us understand what it would be like to be a disciple and how we can not just lay into our reactions, but how we can rely on the Spirit? That's the next piece is we've got to embrace the process of discipleship by relying on the Spirit. The disciples had 40 days with Jesus, but he had just died 40 days earlier. Like, do you all think about that at all? Any reactions to that? Like, do you think they felt overly qualified and ready to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and be the witnesses to the ends of the earth? Like, they had just gotten back from fishing when they found Jesus on the shore waiting on them. I mean, they had heard things, but it's just like, all right, I guess it's time to go back to work and do the things because this guy wasn't the man. He wasn't the person he said he was because he died, and he's not supposed to do that. So, all right. Guess I gotta reorient my life again, just to back the way that it normally was. And so Jesus shows back up on the scene and obviously proclaims the kingdom still, and reveals that he was the one that he said he was gonna be. And then he sends him out 40 days later. So they have a month with him, um, with a lot of different appearances that are recorded, but they still didn't understand. Like they still weren't ready and like you know, strapped and prepped and ready to go, like, you know, um, they had all these questions. And so they're asking Jesus, like, all right, are you going to still do the thing that we expected you to do? And Jesus answered them and says, no, I'm not going to. So in order to do this, why I'm saying all this is because in order to, to fulfill the call that they're going to have to go and do, in order to be witnesses to the ends of the world, in order to tell everybody about who Jesus is, the kingdom that he's brought, and what he's done by defeating death and sin, they're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit. They're going to have to wade into a lot of situations that they're not ready for and prepared for. They're going to have to, like, just start doing some of the things, and that's kind of what the angels, like, say in chorus with this message is, why are you standing around and waiting? Like, go and proclaim and, and, and do the things, like, be empowered by the Spirit and go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they probably felt unprepared. Um, yes. So they were, they were going to receive the Spirit, but they were going to receive the Spirit for a very specific purpose. I think in the American church today, sometimes we can want the power of the Spirit, but without the purpose of the Spirit. And that's kind of a similar thing, where it's like, they were going to be empowered by the Spirit, but what were they going to be empowered by the Spirit to do? Anybody got any ideas? They were going to be empowered by the Spirit, and then what did they go out and do? They spoke in tongues, so there, was, there were communication barriers taken down. Why? So that they could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they could pr proclaim the good news. It wasn't just because it was a miracle. The kingdom was breaking in and breaking down barriers. The kingdom was breaking in and making things right. They were healing people. Things were happening that was reversing the curse and showing that, no, the power of Jesus really is present and at hand, To and Jesus was who he said he was. 
They were proclaiming and explaining the gospel. They were baptizing. They were healing. They were repenting and reorienting their lives. Uh, the kingdom of God was breaking in, but also, like, it looked like th those are a lot of things that are recorded, but we also have record of just them getting together and eating and breaking bread in their households together, like them doing their normal stuff of everyday life and, and being empowered by the Spirit to, to do those things, to be a community of followers of Jesus, to be in the temple every single day praising God. My family and I, we, uh, we used to play this game called Loaded Questions, and oh boy, I'm going to have to go fast. Okay. Here we go. A little neck pop. Somehow I'm going to have to get through the last two points in a lot of not time. Um, my family and I used to play this game called Loaded Questions. This game is a game where you basically, you ask a cool question and then uh, everybody answers the question, throws them into a bowl, and then you draw them out and you have to guess who answered the question. Well, we lost the game and so we just started making up answers or making up questions and answering those and it kind of became a joke in our family because every single time that we would play this game the question if you could have a superpower what would it be would come up every single time so it was just like it was just like we would say well, what game should we play and it's like loaded questions and then people would be like if you could have a superpower because we're nerds and that question would always come up so but something that we never like contemplated was okay and mine would be like maybe super strength or I could fly or teleport or something like that. We always like enjoyed entertaining the question, but we never enjoyed or like thought about what that would connote for the rest of our lives. Like what would it be like to have super strength? What would it be like to have, be able to fly? Like how would that affect your lives? Do you think you'd just go about your normal life from then on and just kind of carry out the normal things? No, that would like radically change your life. Like everything would be different from that point on. You would be empowered and you would have different power and it would completely change everything. And so sometimes we can want the power of the Holy Spirit without the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So like I'm okay with the power of the Spirit coming upon me and being able to speak in tongues and do all these great, cool, miraculous things, but I really don't want him to affect my schedule or change my life. Like I don't want him to break in in a way that's going to like be inconvenient or transform my whole life into something that I didn't really ask for or a set of circumstances that I didn't sign up for. And another way that, another way that Rusty said that we can kind of say this, which is good, is, or somebody said it, is we can, we can really desire an Acts 2 church without an Acts 1 mission. Like, we really want the, the Spirit to break out and, and work in our midst and, and heal people and bring good and do miraculous things. We want to be able to speak in tongues, maybe, or to be able to prophesy or dream and have visions of God. But we don't want that to, like, transform and change the way that we do everything or require us to be more present. Uh, yes. And so that in and of itself is another way in which we really desire the payoff. Like we desire the power of the Holy Spirit. We desire the payoff of discipleship. We desire the, the power of it, but we don't really desire the process. We don't really desire to like step into what that's going to look in the day-to-day -day life. Okay. Really fast. So what's it, what could it look like maybe some, some ways in which we could rely on the Spirit? 
So the, the disciples had to step into a lot of scenarios that they weren't prepared for. What would it look like for us in the day-to-day life to step into places where we have to rely on the Spirit? Maybe it could look like we got our six questions that we read through the Bible with that try and orient us toward a relationship with God. The sixth one is, why is the Spirit revealing this to me? Why does He have me here today? Maybe it would look like taking that more seriously. I know I kind of just say, why is the Spirit revealing this to me? Ah, I found a scenario and that this can apply to, and that's not negating the Spirit, but maybe it looks like just blatantly asking Him and making space to ask Him more often, taking that more seriously. Maybe it looks like wading into real relationship bro- relationships that are with broken and needy people that you can't fix, and you have to be okay with that. Maybe it looks like trusting God with knowledge of what is to come and what we need at the moment. Maybe it looks like Uh, in terms of the greatest commandment, loving God and loving one another, maybe it looks like pressing, pressing into real relational issues in your life that are going to get worse before they get better. Maybe it looks like investigating generational patterns. Maybe it looks like praying for healing and trusting that God can bring that. Maybe it looks like walking into scenarios where you're going to have to pray and trust God to break down walls of communication as he did with the apostles. Uh, Maybe it looks like you leaning into discipleship with imperfect people and being a part of imperfect systems that, and trusting the Spirit that He's going to do good, even through all that imperfection. Maybe it looks like spending some time alone in silence and solitude and just allowing the Holy Spirit to be with you and being okay in that space. All right, so the last piece. We kind of tend to want to escape discipleship, the process of it, because it's not clean, it's not immediate, we're not transformed immediately as we want to be, we're not immediately sanctified and morally sterilized. The circumstances surrounding all of following Jesus in an already not yet world aren't perfect and aren't ideal and exactly what we think that they should be, and that's what we think they should be isn't what Jesus calls us to. And then uh, it stepping into that Stepping into that process of discipleship takes a lot of reliance on the Spirit, a lot of trust, a lot of power that we don't have in and of ourselves. Stepping into relationships with people, into fight clubs, sharing our stories, opening up our lives and being a part of a church that you can step on people's toes and that you can be encouraged and that you need help and you can state your needs. Like All of that requires like a lot of empowering and a lot of power that we don't have. So how do we... Okay. We got the power of the Spirit, but what if we just like still it, that process in and of itself doesn't happen immediately. Like we try and lean into the power of the Spirit and we say, yes, Lord, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to rely on you and I'm going to wade into relationships and I'm going to trust the power of the Spirit to, to transform my life. Well, what if that doesn't happen immediately? We could probably get pretty discouraged, right? And immediately like step back and be like, ah, maybe... I'm just particularly broken and the Spirit can't work through me and not embrace a continuous process again, like just kind of negate and short-circuit the same thing, not remember that this is not an immediate thing. And so what we have to do in the last piece is we have to remember the resurrection. Jesus came to earth, condescended to be with us and experienced the process of life. He experienced loneliness, weakness, frailty, and fear. He was... People were disappointed in him. He was hurt and nailed to a cross. He experienced want and hungers, uh, experienced relational neediness. 
He stepped into our stories, and he's inviting us to step into his in verse 1. Um, but we're kind of back to the beginning of the story, right? We're back to the beginning of Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, by appearing to them during a 40-day period and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is back on the scene. Jesus has waded through all our relational issues. He's waded through life as it was then and as it is now. And Hebrews says that he's a high priest that can sympathize with us because he's experienced everything that we've experienced, right? But while he did step into everything, he, while he did step into our lives and experience suffering, experience difficulty, experience the process of following God through this life so that he could sympathize with us, he didn't stay there. He died, yeah, and he experienced weakness, yeah, and he can empathize with us because he's lived the lives that we have lived, but he also was raised, and he appeared to them again. I started recently at this, um, this summer, I'm working at a logistics company, and I started there, and uh, part of my job is loading and unloading trucks, and part of that is driving a forklift, which my friends have heard lots about. So driving a piece of, also my friend, anyway, that's, a, that's an addendum. Uh, it's a large piece of machinery, and you kind of got to learn how to figure out how to drive it. And it's not immediate. It's not an immediate process. So I'm like loading and unloading trucks and driving like 13 miles throughout, per hour through a building. And uh, you just make mistakes. And so, like, I'll, like, stab a pallet of really expensive product and just, it's like, oh, man, like, I got to go tell my supervisor. Sheesh. Like, I just jammed this fork into a pallet of GE uh, water towers or something like that. And I'm just, like, I can get really ashamed and just get in my head and be like, gosh, you're stupid, man. Why did you do that? <sighs> Again. Or, like, I, I, like, maybe I'll drop something and, like, I hit the brakes too fast and it just... One, one day, it just like hammered down like a double stack pallet full of stuff. And this lady looks and just exclaimed profanity at me. And I was just like, ah, oh, just in front of everybody. It was just massive, just like wham, in, in front of God and everyone, literally. <laughs> and so I'm just standing there, like sitting on the forklift and looking at the mess that I've just made and like, how am I going to fix this and explain to my boss that I've just destroyed the product that I was supposed to unload from this truck. And so in those kinds of moments, as I'm learning how to navigate and learning how to drive a, uh, a forklift, I can get really ashamed. And that makes me not being immediately good at that makes me not want to do it anymore. That makes me want to go and make Volkswagen mirrors is the other thing we do in there for the rest of the time, my time there and never touch a forklift again. Um, but something that's been really helpful during that period is my supervisor. Like, I don't think if I kept dropping stuff and he was screaming at me that I, I just would not be able to do it. Like under a certain amount of pressure, I would just make more mistakes than I'm already making. But something that's helpful for me is he's not only gracious, like, my boss would be like, ah, oh, man, it's okay. Like, don't worry about it, dude. We'll, we'll fix it. We'll, we'll pick it up. What did you screw up this time, man? Come on. Uh, but he'll also, like, 
he also tells me that he's been where I've been. Like, he'll also say to me, like, ah, man, I've dropped more stuff than I've picked up some days. And he'll come alongside me and be like, I've experienced the same thing that you've experienced. Like, don't worry about it, man. And so knowing that he's been there and knowing that he also, like, has experienced the same kind of shame and, like, vow as I experience when I do things like that is helpful. But it's also helpful for him to be present with me at that moment and just be like, I've been there and I'm better at it now. I've been there and like I've progressed, but and like not be alone in the middle of those moments. So last little bit. That's super helpful to me. And I think that's super helpful for us as disciples, as witnesses who are trying to lean into our identity of being process-oriented people, who are trying to lean into a process that's messy and not clean and trying to learn to rely on the Spirit's power and be empowered witnesses by the Spirit without shaming ourselves out of it, without counting ourselves out of, out of the race. We have to remember the resurrected Jesus. We have to remember the Jesus who was in the midst of all the things that we ever are experienced and yet is triumphant over them and the Jesus who overcame those things like it's not just that he experienced those he did and he's able to empathize with us and sympathize with all of our sufferings sympathize with all the things that we've gone through but he's also victorious over them and that's that's why he can have grace for us as we're learning this in this process of becoming disciples that's why we don't have to give up when we like mess things up as disciples and so who who is this gospel for who is the gospel of this process oriented following of Jesus for we have to uh, this is yeah we have to persist in our remembrance of the Jesus that died and was resurrected because the very same Jesus who followed the Father through this life perfectly, he has grace for us in our sins and imperfections. All right, so who needs this gospel today? I think this, the gospel of Acts 1 and this process-oriented discipleship is for the couple who got in a fight on this morning on the way to church, on the way to this building with this people in it who is the church. Uh, for the young man who's going to go home today and fight against addiction to pornography, for the adolescent who does everything that they can to fit in, for the mother who feels like she will never be enough for her children, for the recovering alcoholic who slips, for the college student who doesn't seem to measure up academically and thinks God feels similarly about his performance, for the woman who has made mistakes in her past and can never forget what she has done and just wishes that Jesus would cleanse them and take them away, for the elderly woman who does not experience the fullness of the kingdom but finds herself alone at the end of her life, for everybody, for all the people who are struggling and suffering and learning to rely on the Spirit and to be empowered to be witnesses, this is a gospel of good news. It's a gospel that, like, we're called to something that's great, called to something that's powerful and, and big, but we're also called in grace. We're also called by the one who has finished it all. And so the good news of Acts 1, 1 through 11, is that we don't have to be perfect. Jesus already was perfect, and we're not Jesus. But we can participate in the process of discipleship and receive more than we'd ever hoped for. And so the last thing I'll say is, I was just thinking about this at the end, is like, what, what would it look like for me to pick up the guitar 
and this sounds kind of cheesy, but like, what would it look like for me to pick up the guitar and learn and, and start to learn something and be bad at it and lean into the power of the Spirit in that, lean into the Jesus who is smiling over me instead of my own evaluations of myself and my own shaming of myself that I'm not good enough at something? Like, what would it look like for us to step into our lives and do things that we don't feel good at do things that we're going to be bad at and that we're going to make mistakes at and know the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is going with us into our day-to-day lives, into the halls of our hearts and into our relationships and into the normal every day. And that's it. Um, Yeah. Though we think it would tend to be better if Jesus would just zap us with his righteousness and sanctification gun, and he could, he's calling us today to something to hear and follow him into something that's better. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I, I pray and hope that I've said something helpful um, and help to reframe and maybe orient us toward something that is what you're calling us to. Thank you, God, for your call today. And if nothing else that we've heard today, Lord, we've heard you say that We are your empowered witnesses. We're loved by you and empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow you. I pray that you would help us and grow us and change us and help us remember your grace for us even when we struggle to do so. In the name of Jesus Christ.